0: Hey guys, this is Ishai Braslower and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we continue, I would like to introduce you to the 7-Day CRE Challenge which will introduce you to commercial real estate and will show you that anyone can do this. Also, I have the free cheat sheet for commercial real estate with the six best secrets for commercial real estate. You can download it free. Just click below or above, wherever it is, and get it. Let's continue. Hi, guys. This is Ishai Braslauer of the CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you guys are doing fantastic this Monday morning. And today we have a special guest. Uh, Really, I'm really excited about this uh, show today because we're going to talk a little bit about Real estate and data, where are they coming together, and being involved in prop tech, also. This is a very unique world, and one of the pioneers of this world is here today with us. His name is LD Salmonson of Cherry. That's the name of the the company, and this is a data-driven company that we're going to hear so much about, and I urge you to really listen carefully because you're going to learn a lot of new things if you're not in it, and if you are a pro or if you guys are enterprise- you guys definitely want to listen. So without any further ado, LD, how you doing?
1: Doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. And uh, it's been a long time. It's been a long time, a long uh, ride of COVID, as we call it. And uh, so it's been a little weird and uh, a little unique. Uh, how have you been within all this, you know, storm that is going on in the world?
1: Yeah, it's a crazy year. Um for many reasons, um, we've been doing really well as a company. I've been doing pretty well personally. Uh, dealing with a lot of you know things I didn't really deal with, just being alone a lot, right? Uh, my wife and I have been uh, pretty much locked up in the home for about a year now. Unlike uh, where you are in Israel, uh, here we really stay locked down. Uh, at least on the East Coast, we've right. been pretty uh, hunkered down. Um, I've been going back and forth the office, you know, pretty week, pretty weekly or, or every other week. Um, I drive into the city. I'm actually outside of the city uh, these days because New York City is a little depressing. Um, but overall, doing really well. Um, we did really well as a company this last year. We almost tripled in growth. Um, a lot of really big clients um, added to the list. So um, it's a shitty year. There's no way around it. But all in all, we're doing yeah. pretty good.
0: Very, very cool. So we have a lot to talk about. I prepared a lot of questions here. And uh, I really, I'm really, as you know, I'm involved in this world that is called prop tech uh, pretty heavily and uh, I have a lot of stuff to talk about. But I want to start simple. You know, and then we started to dive in. So starting simple is if you could introduce yourself a little bit to it and how you started all. You were like the, I would say, if, if I were to have to say an entrepreneur and open a, you know, Wikipedia of startup entrepreneur, that would be you, man. So tell us a little bit about how you started, how did it all come up to life and how did you get into this whole thing?
1: Yeah, um, I, I don't know that I deserve any of that credit. Uh, I don't even know what entrepreneur means. I guess it's just uh, another another word for unemployable. Um, that's at least my <laughs> um, Ben and I, my co-founder. We've been um, friends for a really long time. So uh, we grew up in Jerusalem, um, and as teenagers, we started our first company in kind of the IT services space. And we ended up merging that company and selling it pretty pretty quickly thereafter. And Um, After the Army, after school, um, I helped Ben spin off another company in the HR space um, that's doing really well. You know, big clients like the Olympics, Ticketmaster, Railroad Industry. And um, while we were in school, I was at Wharton. Ben was over at MIT, and we started another company um, in the private equity trading space. Again, connecting large amounts of data to make better investment underwriting decisions in the private equity space. And uh, we did really well. That company started under the Knight Capital umbrella, and we sold to Oppenheimer, where we ran um, private shares group, private equity there for a few years. Um, And we really want to do the same thing in the real estate space. I mean, real estate's uh, uh, the largest asset class in the world by far. Um, It doesn't lack um, smart people. There's a lot of smart people in the industry, a lot of money, a lot of wherewithal, to do really cool things. The challenge has always been uh, data silos, right? Or or generally silos, right? Real estate siloed Mm -hmm. by asset class, by geography, by um, systems, by data um, realms and um, we had this very you know, profound vision that if we we're able to connect all real estate data, we'd be able to help transition this industry into a data-driven um, industry, meaning convert this industry into um, a science, really, to the extent of investing the science. Um, that's what we set out to do, and um, most folks thought we were crazy when we started. They were right, clearly. Um, it's a hard, hard industry to, to work in. A lot of people who are you know, very set in their ways, a lot of people are very risk-averse. Uh, but if you're able to break down those barriers, which we were able to do, it took a long time, um, you're really able to do some really special things. You're able to bring a lot of people together that um, otherwise would never cooperate with each other. And I mean, it's not the expense of anyone, right? Everyone makes more as a result. So the, the data vendors and application vendors are stickier and make more money. Um, the users, you know, the big investment funds, um, insurance companies, banks have, can make better decisions and they get to look at more things. And the brokers become more meaningful, right? It's not like we're replacing those intermediaries in the middle, the brokers are now able to, to do all the things they really wish they could do. They, they're not meant to be holders of data. They're meant to be trusted advisors. Um, they're meant to be able to give um, context to the data. And they were also struggling beforehand, right? To really provide the right context, but now they're able to do that as well. So um, our job and, and our mission has always been kind of be that that Switzerland in the middle, connect all real estate data and empower the entire ecosystem. We're really proud to be able to do that today.
0: Tell me something, um, you know, when you look at data, and, and I'm thinking about the finance world, right? We have all these big giants like uh, like Bloomberg and Aladdin and whatever, all these guys, right? And uh, when it comes to the real estate world, it's very, very different. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you experience this whole different, you know, the the difference between those worlds?
1: Yeah, sure. So in traditional finance, we we have kind of what's called core data and then we have alternative data. And core data we don't really think about today because we're in this world of alternative data and we're so deep into it that we kind of skip the first step, which is, well, how do we even get the, that core data in the first place? Because it's just a given that you can go to companies like, you know, Capital IQ, Bloomberg, you know, um, S&P, which is now also Capital IQ. Um, again, Thomson, Roy, there's a whole slew of companies and a and Latin more on the analytics side, obviously. Right. Um, those are all really cool companies, but the innovation that they uh, really sparked back in the 90s and maybe um, early, some of them actually in, even in the 80s, was bringing together the core data in the industry, the ticker data, right? So if you go back to the 80s or, or 70s, really, you didn't get live ticker data. You got ticker data at the end of the day. Um, some of the brokers in the middle, on the, you know in the pits, were able to kind of relay on the phone what the live information was and people were taking notes, but you didn't really have intraday uh, trading data. You didn't have live ticker data, obviously. And then it wasn't until the 90s where we really had live ticker data in the way that we kind of think about it today but even then most of the big funds that we think about like you know um, renaissance right RenTech, when they built those those live ticker feeds that was really revolutionary at the time it's really what allowed them to do all the, the cool things they did in the 90s to build that fund to what it is today um it, it took a long time to do that but then once we had the ticker data companies like bloomberg started building massive powerhouses behind the scenes so they would go back to all the different data vendors in the world that had bond data, you know, muni bond data and corporate bond data, um, and then maybe small cap stocks and slowly start collecting all that data into a single repo, right? Or it's to a single repository. And it wasn't so much the fact that they made it available in a terminal. That That's one part of it. The fact that they made it accessible and that the terminal that really hasn't changed much in the last 20 uh, something years, it kind of looks the same for those who've been in the industry. Um, The real innovation is what happened behind the scenes, the business um, relationships that allowed you to be able to say, I can just get all that data without having to think about where it came from. Why is it accurate? Why do I need to trust it? I just do. It just works. Right. So that's the first innovation that happened um, in those core data providers. And we don't have that in the real estate industry. Right. So we can jump and skip ahead to the, to the alternative data world, which is really cool. Right. We have a lot of really great partners in that space. And for those who don't know, we have hundreds of partners and, um, we bring together a lot of different data vendors in, in the alternative space as well. But the real innovation is a core data space. And in, in the real estate industry, that isn't one provider, right? It's a whole slew of providers. TREP and RCA and Comstack and Reese, Moody's and CoStar and a few other data sets. And we can also go to the public data vendors like First American and CoreLogic, uh, Black Knight, Atom, right, which aggregate some of those data sets you need to bring all that together first, right? And before we bring that together into a single kind of cohesive core data set, what we call our foundation data set, you really can't do anything, right? So first you have to build that foundation of core data sets. What is this property? What is the community around it? Who owns it? Things of that nature. And only then can you start layering on top all that um, alternative data, things that are really cool data sets, like maybe like a grapher or Unicast for foot traffic or ADP or Equifax for, you know, Uh, Paycheck data or or credit risk and the list goes on and on to really cool data sets
0: Tell me something. This is really interesting way of saying but when it comes to you guys, okay So we have all these, you know, you see all the differences. You see all the companies when you came in and you built and you started cherry How are you guys different from all those existent, you know uh, Those existing companies like costar and all these guys that are there. How are you guys? How do you differentiate yourself from this? Well,
1: we're really a different type of company, right? So companies like CoStar, Trap, RCA, Comstack, those are companies that collect source data, right? Those are all really cool companies. Let's, let's look at CoStar for an example, right? And CoStar is not a partner of ours. Hopefully they will be right. one thing. Um, they're actually the only major vendor that's not a partner of ours yet, but uh, hopefully we'll change that. Um, right. CoStar is a company that goes and collects core data, right? They, um, Besides the companies they've bought, like 10X and you know, some other recent ones, which, you know, auction and all those types of companies that, Um, give them access to a lot of, you know, trading data or listing data. What the real core competency was back in the day was picking up the phone and calling brokers and asking them, you know, tell me what this lease sold for, tell me what this lease closed at, you know, tell me what you sold the property for and collecting that type of raw information. That's very valuable, right? Because in an industry where there is no central repository, where all that data resides, and you're not required to report a lot of that data, actually having that insight is very valuable, right? And we don't replace that. We don't collect raw data literally from anywhere. I mean, we do some stuff on the public data side, but again, it's only because we have to, if we could buy that from somewhere, we wouldn't. Um, Another example might be RCA. Again, they pick up the phone, they call multifamily transactions or your office transactions. Who bought it? Who sold it? um, What did you buy and sell it for? What were the comps you were looking at? Things like that. Or um, Reese, when they go and build all those different economic boundaries. Again, these, co- these companies, or, or maybe ComStack, you know, collecting crowdsourcing data, we I can give a lot of examples, right? But these companies spend a lot of time and effort pulling data from sources, collating that data, collecting that data, and making it actionable at the end of the day in a, in a digestible format. Um, we don't replace any of those companies at all. We don't even try to. On the contrary, those are all partners of ours. Our job is to bring those data sets together such that you can trade uh, based on all that combined information. Because the challenge you have right now is if you're only using CoStar, you're missing part of the world, right? You still need TREP and RCA and Comstack and REESE, right? If you're only using RCA, again, you're missing the other side of the picture. And the challenge we have is not that there isn't enough data available. The challenge is that it's sitting there siloed. And if I asked you to do a simple question, something like, show me all properties that traded in the last you know, three years at such and such valuation, owned by such and such people. Yeah, it's, you'll have to go all
0: over the place to find You it. have to go
1: to every single one of these data sets separately. Yeah and nothing connects right because the addresses don't match this one will have a building name
0: don't we'll match. A lot, the right? data from the zoning is one the data from the attack yeah, one everything is different yeah yeah
1: exactly and, and our philosophy hasn't been let's go replace those folks on the contrary our philosophy has been each one of those vendors separately is extremely valuable and they you know they buy up the ones within their verticals such that they don't really have to compete within each other um and again there's some new entrants that try and maybe compete and peel off you know I, Reonomy is buying a few data sets and they're trying to compete maybe with RCA, but at the end of the day, I don't know any uh, major professional is gonna choose, let's say a Reonomy over an RCA, right? Um, I know a lot of brokers that will use a Reonomy, for example, to try and get a phone number for someone to call up or something like that, but that's not what RCA is competing for. And to the extent that Reonomy builds that customized data set, you know, even if it's collating for some others, that will have a legitimate use case that will, will perpetuate, right? Our philosophy has been very different. Our job is not to put together an application. Our job is not to collect source data and compete with a CoStar, TREP, or RCA. Our philosophy has been, let's bring all those data sets together such that you as the investor, as the large enterprise investor, is able to make better investment underwriting decisions. Because our assumption is that you've already utilized the maximum amount of value that you can extract from any single data set. We've passed the world, right? Now we're in the point of what value can we extract from connected data sets? And that's our philosophy at Cherry.
0: Tell me something. So your, your clients are basically those mega clients, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what type of clients they are and how you approach them? How do you get to that? What type of marketing, what type of processes you do in order to get to them? Soon we're going to talk also about what type of services you make. But first of all, you know, just the interaction is just very different. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about this thing?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're a B2B company, right? So we don't work with you know the, the agent, the broker, the you know the, the end user of any of, of our technology really, right? We're a platform technology and we serve the large enterprise clients. So the largest banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, um, large real estate investors, that's our core clientele. Um, we also work with a lot of technology firms, right? So the, the service providers in the industry um, that service those large clients. Um, most of our clients are very, very large. Um, I don't think we serve a single fund below, you know, a billion, billion and a half dollars in in assets under management. Most of our target clients are, you know, the 20s, 30s, right? These are the largest clients in the world. We serve really the largest. Um, We also serve the largest PNC insurance companies in the world, right? The largest actually, um, which do automated underwriting. So instead of maybe um, having a whole team that underwrites risk um, for an insurance policy or or large banks as well, trying to underwrite a mortgage or commercial real estate transaction or, or underwriting... Um, they use automated processes, right? All the data is connected behind the scenes. And then all I have to do is put in whatever algorithm they have for underwriting or whatever business logic rules. And they get immediate answers of yay yeah or nay. Um, we reach our client. And again, the technology firms are really, again, they build on top of us and they they build all these really cool solutions for their clients, right? CRM yeah, systems, it, right. systems, yeah, things like that.
0: It's, it sounds more natural with it, with the technology companies, but when it comes to yeah. those large banks, large hedge funds, all these guys, right? Sounds like, it could be a real insurance company. It sounds like crazy process getting in, just making a deal, meaning how long could it take just to get in and get a deal there?
1: It's a funny question. Some of those deals take a couple of years. Um, amazing. It really depends. Um, again, we're doing a lot better there than we did maybe a couple of years ago because a few things happen in the industry. First of all, the industry has come around to the point where we there's a large pull, right? So we don't really have outbound marketing to be fair. So, uh, it's probably something we should uh, do a little better and uh, to get some more clients. But um, almost all of our clients are inbound. They reach out to us. They, they learn from a peer that um, it's something we might be able to solve, connect their data. Um, and then we usually um, onboard them fairly quickly thereafter. Um, most of our clients, the vast majority of them, um, have a very simple problem, right? And when they reach out to us, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Here are the things I'm trying to connect. Um, Does Cherry's platform solve that? The answer is almost always yes um, in our core uh, competency. Um, The sales process um, has now come down to probably about three months, actually a little less, more around the the 75 days, so about two and a half months. From the moment somebody discovers us, the moment we close a deal, um, significantly faster these days. um, It's a result of a few things that we've done. So first of all, um, we now have pretty much every data partner that matters in the industry basically plug and play, turn them on and off. Um, Almost all of our technology platform is really, really good at this point, such that it's very much self-serve. You can kind of just plug in the feeds, map things out, and it's instantly available on the other side. So that allows us to kind of skip that long discovery process, that long POC process, that long, you know, let's go get some deals with all the data vendors that you're missing and translate that into, well, what do you have? I have this, this, and this application and these, you know, these three data sets, great. Next, is this data model good for you? Yeah, it's good for me here are the set of dashboards that we typically create and here's the api is that what you were looking for yes awesome we can sign a contract right um and it takes a little time to go through procurement um and compliance but that's also something that we do a lot better right so we're sock 2 compliant right none of the companies in our space that you know pretend to connect data and i say pretend cuz a lot of them just say things that then the pedal hits the metal they really can't do any of the things that we're talking about and we always win con- every time there's like a competitive situation i'll say Okay, give us everything, let's talk in two weeks and tell the competitor also show you what they have in two weeks. And the answer is always, well, the competitor said that it might take a few months and that they're really busy, which is, you know, code name for them, no clue what they're doing. It's all manual behind the scenes and nothing really works. Whereas as fast as we, we can probably get it done in a day if we just put the resources on it. But again, we have a lot of clients. So two weeks is pretty much a fast turnaround time to be able to show um, strength and so we're SOC 2 compliant, we meet compliance, in, you know, the strictest organizations in the world, the biggest insurance companies, Fannie Mae, government, things like that. So in order to meet those types of, um, of compliance and security protocols, we had to do a lot over the last couple of years to be able to um, make sure that our clients um, are, are, are safe, really, within our environment. So that skips a lot of processes as well today, right? Because when you go to procurement, it's, okay, fill out the form, well, we already have them canned. You know, what is the compliance? Oh, we're SOC 2 compliant. Here's our pen testing, you know, all that. It's like, okay, done. You passed, right?
0: So I'll tell you what. It sounds like you guys went through so much, in order to get to this point that you're doing it so smoothly right now, right? Even today, probably not that smooth, but it's much faster than it used to be. All right. So I'm going to put you up on this. Uh, Let's go back in time, okay, where you guys started. Not the very beginning, but let's say somewhere around that. And you got a deal. And you get bumped into those enterprises. You guys are small, right? You guys are tiny. And they are asking for all these questions, compliance, security, cyber, all kinds of things you probably, half of that you didn't even know about. Okay? How did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, it wasn't easy. Um, I think I spoke about this in the past publicly, but winning an enterprise deal as a startup is one of the hardest things in the world. Um, you're basically going up against, you know, everything, Right. It's not even just, you know, security and compliance, which are huge, huge fears, right? I mean, right. if I'm a if I'm a major PNC insurance company or I'm, a, or I'm Fannie Mae, right? I'm gonna say, wait a minute, I'm gonna give this tiny company that I'd probably never heard of before this meeting, which who knows what security protocols they have, even if they say they're good, how how big is the team? Five people? What, what could they possibly do, right? Um, how what compliance could look like there? They they don't have a controller, right? They don't have a, a legal in house, or They have, they have nothing. Right, um, if something goes wrong, how can they guarantee uptime? Right, you know, if some there a crash tomorrow, it's going to take them a month to get back up and running. Um, what if the company disappears? They run out of money tomorrow, and now now my core infrastructure, right? We're a core infrastructure company. What if they right. disappear tomorrow? My entire infrastructure is you know built on top of them. What a disaster, right? What if my competitor buys them? Will they shut me off? You know, or am I going to have to worry about that as well? The list goes on and on and on, right? Crazy. Um, so you go up against everything. Um, my only solution has always been to be very open up front with those clients and say, we don't have all the things that you want us to have. But here's the things I can guarantee. First of all, we're going to do the best that we can do with what we have. Right? We're going to really work hard. Second, we can't afford for you to tell everyone else that we sucked. We need you to tell everyone else that we were amazing, that we worked our asses off and you got an incredible experience. Me, personally, the founder of the company, together with Ben, my co-founder, we literally gave personal guarantees, not written personal, personal human guarantees saying, we got you covered. We're going to be behind this personally. We're going to make sure that this works. Um, And that goes a long way in an enterprise environment in early stages. And you need to find a champion in the company that's willing to take a bet on you and say, okay, you know, I understand the risks that we're taking. We're gonna put those in a box, right? We're gonna make we're gonna put you on a plan. You're gonna have to be compliant within such and such time. You're gonna have to pass a SOC two. We had to pass SOC two compliance because the clients made us pass SOC two compliance, right? We're gonna we're gonna give you our data, but we're gonna make you put you know we're put on a plan. You're gonna have to kind of eventually get to where we need you to be. You're gonna have to hire people, you know, security and logistics managers. You're gonna have to hire pen testing, penetration testing companies. You're gonna have to migrate certain risk protocols in a company over time. All these things you have to commit to doing and. It's not easy. Um, I'll say that we absolutely lost certain deals during that time because companies said, well, that's cool, but I'm not going to take that risk on you. And, you know, come back to us when you've passed all those things. But some will take that risk on you. And those early partners um, are people you should be extremely grateful to have. And it's not easy to get them. And we're extremely grateful. All those are still clients of ours today. They've been incredibly supportive over the years. And that's um, great. we owe them a lot personally, but we also owe them a lot professionally because this company couldn't exist without them.
0: It's amazing. Tell me something. When you are talking about the real estate data, I have a lot of questions, but I want to get into the next thing is when you look at the real estate data, right? It's so messed up, right? It's so not organized. It's so not enterprise-like. You know, when you go as a real estate company and you want to know so many data points, you have to go. And like you said, it's not only calling or getting to all those companies that will give you the data, It's many times and still even today you have to go to those municipalities and get from this department, get this piece of data, this, and sometimes they contradict, and you have to go and correlate it, and your analysts have to go through and put it in the you know in the in in the performa and play with it and see that everything works, etc. What is the way technologically, meaning AI-wise, to get this automated?
1: How do you guys do it? I'll avoid the the words AI because that's kind of not a very it's a it's a good word to put on the deck, but it's not a very meaningful word, kind of in a technology standpoint. Why give you kind of a good sense of what we do? There's there's some core stages, right? The first stage is getting the data, the source data, and source data comes in our realm from from multiple sources. So Muni data there's about you know, thirty one hundred to thirty four hundred counties, depending on how you count um, data counties, because there's a lot of sub and overlap there. Um, that's what we call assessor and recorder data. So um deeds and transactions and mortgages things that you're required to record um, within that county. Then you have the assessor data, which is you know the tax authority deciding how much you owe right for that specific parcel. Right. Um, you'll notice that building is not something that's necessarily captured there, right? Because the assessor is trying to figure out how much you owe in taxes. It may not be super you know uh, important to them to figure out if you have one building, three buildings, what they're zoned for. These things may not be part of that. Um, right. And Another challenge you have is a lot of counties across the U.S. are what we call non-reporting counties, meaning they don't provide data. If You know, Texas, guns and, and property, they just don't want you to know what they own, right? So it's very hard to excuse me, collect that core data. So that's kind of the muni data or, you know, the, the county data. And there's a whole realm of public data that covers that, which includes, you know, parcel data and demographic data and school attendance, just a whole list of, of information that, that different professionals might want. Then you have the second realm of data, which is, um, paid data vendors, right? That's that's data that you buy. You can buy from CoStar, Trip, RCA, right. Content, all those great vendors out there. Um, once you buy those data sets, they don't necessarily talk about the same thing. One talks about buildings, one talks about owners, one talks about parcels, right? They talk about different entities. Right. And finally, you have application data, right? So internal data systems like, you know, Argus and Yardi, MRI, RealPage, JD Edwards, VTS, right? All those kind of core systems. That's your internal data. Right. And that, again, covers information about tax ledgers and about buildings and about asset management and about building management. Right. Again, these things don't talk about um, the same thing. So the first step is getting all of that realm of data into your world consistently. Right. It's not let me just go download it once. Let me go. You know, there are companies out there and this is not to belittle them. I'm, I'm sure they do good stuff, but it's a very different world to say give me your data, let me go put it in Power BI once, or let me create a, like an automated ingester into Power BI or something like that, such that it looks cool. That's a very different world, and you have to build some kind of manual resolution model every single time in there. That's a very different world than what we do, which is I have actual taps to all those different data vendors who are partners of ours. All that flows into a single environment consistently. If you said... How often does that data come in? I can answer reliably how long, how long it takes it to process through the system, how often it's updated, if the county dropped it tomorrow, what changed since then, right? All that type of stuff. So that's the first part, getting data in. We've built automated processes, ingestion processes for pretty much every type of data in the world. Um, And taps, kind of like faucets, you can literally turn on and off with all of our data partners. Like if you want RCA data, so long as you're an RCA data partner, meaning you're, you're sorry, an RCA client and you're paying them the right fee, could turn it on. That's it. It just flows through the system. Right. And if not, we can make that available because we, we love upselling those clients so they can go um, buy data that we think is valuable for them to make better decisions. The second step is things that would happen in any data world. It's not necessarily a real estate specific problem, which is how do we clean and prepare this data for things that are about to come? And this can mean simple things like you know making sure that you know a zero, not um, an empty space, an NA, ref- what does that mean? They're all different types of ways of saying I don't know or zero, right? Or, or what if it's really a zero, right? Does zero mean that I don't know? Does zero mean that I didn't fill out the form? Or does zero mean it's actually a zero value there, right? We didn't pay right. tax, right? So there's a lot of things around, you know, cleaning the data, preparing the data, normalizing the data. And a lot of the normal processes that we would typically use um, outside of the real estate world would actually be very scary to use in the real estate world because we take these regular rules and we apply them to the real estate world, we're actually ruining the data because we think that we're cleaning stuff up, but there's all these unique problems in real estate um, that preparing the data in the wrong way would actually ruin the resolution that we'll talk about in a second. So we have to do all the regular things that we do for any data prep and cleaning and resolution, or sorry, for resolution, but we have to take these really specific steps and nuances to make sure that it works um, for the real estate world. Then we have entity resolution, right? How do we put all this data into a single model um, in a way that makes sense together with certain business logic rules? And again, here are the challenges. Someone might say, well, okay, they all have an X, Y coordinate. Let's just map on the X, Y coordinate. There are a lot of companies out there that kind of try and solve things geospatially. and It sounds good, but it's a really, really naive way to solve things. I mean, so I'd say, well, if, it, if something has the same X, Y coordinate, it must be the same thing. Well, first of all, what are we talking about? Are we, so is this the building? Is it the lot? Is it an owner? They all have the same xy coordinate, but doesn't really mean anything. Is this the office on the thirty-fourth floor? Is it the HPD, you know, um, um, rooftop bar on the top of it, or is it the retail on the bottom? They all have the same xy coordinates. So are we talking about the same thing? We just ignored the entire, you know, entire axes. Um, we have parcels that are split. So uh, my my apartment in New York, you know, um, has a parcel has you know a whole building in between and another parcel. Right? The parcels don't overlap at all. Right. So how would I even know that we're talking about the same thing that the XY coordinates don't overlap? Right. What if I have buildings that literally overlap again? My building in New York is built next to the Hearst Tower, the right. base of the Hearst Tower. My building literally overlaps the Hearst Tower. They share the same XY coordinates, different buildings, different parcels. Right. So if I went and I could buy, you know, the air rights from across the street, I can have an owner in the building that lives, you know, in Albuquerque, but is, has an apartment here. So it's just putting everything on XY coordinate is a disaster. It's like a, that's a clear way to screw things up. Um, you need a lot more um, rich object model, which says, is this a building? Is this a lot? Is this an owner? Is this a unit? Is this an office? It has to be able to understand or be aware of all these different types of objects so it can map data to those different types of objects in real time. And then once I've done that, I've mapped you know, everything that came into the right places, now I have to map everything into what we call a knowledge graph, right? So back to data science, um, these are the type of things that we say, okay, let's take all that data and map it to a giant, you know, what looks like, you know, a, a you sometimes see those as social media, right? Those nodes with all those things connected. That's a knowledge graph. Um, and we do that for real estate. And once you map a knowledge graph, you could start uncovering certain hidden things that would sit within that graph. Like who's the actual owner of a property behind an LLC? Well, it's not registered in any of those places we just mentioned, but I see that this LLC also has an address that shares with you know Mikey over here. And then Mikey over here also has a, oh, I just uncovered that Mikey owns these three properties and he owns this LLC. And every time I see an LLC, I can probably identify that it's somebody else. And then only after we finish all that, do we then take that data and make it available as a single source of truth. In our case, we offer um, a graph-based API, GraphQL-based API. And that means that as a single endpoint, we make every single piece of data that you've connected through our system available instantly through a single um, endpoint. That's really, really powerful, right? I don't have to Go search for that data in hundreds of different places. I don't have to figure out how do I connect it or pull it in different ways. I have one endpoint, every single piece of data all available through that. And I can push that into my you know charts and graphs into my UI tool, I can push that into an application, or I can consume that in a way, you know, into a data science world, which is what a lot of our clients do as well.
0: So tell me something. So let's say if if I'm an enterprise that I'm I'm a client of yours, I need a certain type of data, okay? Which we're gonna get to in a second, but so you're saying, according to what you just explained, I understand. Let me let me see if I understand correctly. You have already that, you know, all those data's coming in together, correlated and wrapped up and packaged. And if I'm an enterprise one, certain piece of data, all you have to do, you don't have to go from, you know, get them from scratch. You have them already. All you have to do is just pull out what needed. And here it is. Pretty much just with a little touch ups here. And
1: pay. There. Um, all those data vendors that feed into our system are, are really good data vendors and they get paid for that, right? So, right, you give and give take, of course. Yeah. You have to make sure that those vendors get paid and they get paid good money because they're providing really good data. And so long as you are a subscriber to those data vendors or we allow you to subscribe, whether through us or directly, depending on what you're trying to do, um, the answer is yes. You can literally turn those feeds on and off and get access to all that data in one place for the first time.
0: That's amazing. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I'm a real estate guy, also, as you know, and uh, and we all know the real estate world and the real estate families and the big corporations that are not so, I would call it, modern data driven, right? The, I would put in one group. I would put the insurance companies and the banks and uh, and the hedge funds and the other group. I would put those, you know, family offices or families that run mega businesses because some of them are, you know, they own huge businesses. You probably also approach them or they approach you. How is the experience working with these guys when it comes to data? I'm sure it's very different.
1: So that's changed dramatically over the last few years. So maybe four or five years okay. ago, you know, there was a big dichotomy. I would say the economy has really been torn down, right? So I look at companies like Silverstein and Rudin and, uh, related. And these companies are at the forefront of technology today. Right, uh, And you can, it, the list keeps going on and on, you know, Graystone and Graystar and Heinz. Some of them know. also have accelerators. So I, I guess, oh, absolutely. yeah, I mean, they're investing a lot of money in building data architecture. They're investing a lot of money in modernizing their systems. Um, COVID was also a massive accelerant for them. So they're all moving to, you know, um, Keyless. List- I mean, look at latch, right. Just spacked um, uh, with the Tishman SPAC for, um, abnormal amount of money pretty recently. I mean, that's a, that's in a COVID effect, right? We start saying, right. well, am I going to have to, you know, continue to use keys to get into buildings, you know, or am I going to have to start using something um, which is a little more modern? So it's been a huge accelerant for a lot of those, you know, touchless technologies, you know, people-less technologies, things like that. Um, right. But I think most of these large firms, you know, have really understood two things. One is when I think about an asset life cycle, there's this the beginning of the cycle where I, I identify and buy an asset. There's I manage it throughout the life cycle, and then I dispose of that asset at some point at the end. So there's the buying and selling and there's the managing in between and those processes have always been very separate from each other so you'd have people on the acquisition side of the house you know using data from you know axiometrics or Yardi matrix or some of our new partners like you know rental beast and mls data to get an answer of you know what's what's the price on the market for you know go what's the going price for you know multifamily residential whereas they had a whole giant portfolio of multifamily in their own you know in their own world but they couldn't even answer like. What, are, what is the actual asking rate that we're getting it call somebody other and what it's more or less you're getting on average and they'd use that right instead of having that you know completely uh, or and again on the massive management side if i'm you know setting my rates i use one of those softwares that optimizes which completely ignores everything that's happening in the market you know in real time um that has to change right and that's a, an understanding that regardless of cherry and again we, we can take a lot of credit for pushing the mark in that direction but it was happening already because people understood that those, once those silos come down um, there's a lot of value to be created in ROI and NOI. Um, if I'm if every single one of us in the market's looking at a transaction from a broker, whoever can make that decision faster and with more conviction wins that deal. And if I can actually look at deals that are not coming from the broker, even better because now I can find alpha in places that nobody else is looking. And that cycle can continue. If I if I can spend instead of you know a whole army of people in my back office taking all the accounting data from Yardi and RealPage and MRI and going over it manually and building you know, the trial bounces and building, you know, variance analysis. And then I have a whole team that just builds reporting. If I could take that entire team, not fire them, but say, hey, the report's automatically built. Now let's go figure out why this asset's doing better than that one. Let's figure out how we can replicate it. Or should we be selling this asset? How are we doing versus our peers? How are we doing versus benchmark? Um, that's a lot more profound. So that's a direction that I think the entire industry is moving. And I would say that the family offices are not as far behind as they used to be. They're, they're a little further behind than, you know, a, a Blackstone and Brookfield and, you know, related, because those those are massive technology powerhouses. You know, RxR today is also now a big technology powerhouse. Right. But, um, if you asked Rudin, which is, you know, a classic family office in New York, um, John Gilbert says this very famously, um, we used to be a, a real estate firm that, that deals with technology. Now we're a technology firm that deals with real estate. And I think um, that's probably a very accurate description of what's happening in, in the family office world today.
0: Is it, is, it happening because of Certain people they hired inside the organization or the leadership decided we had to change.
1: I think it's a bit of a combination, right? So part of it's just a changing of the guard, right? So if you look at some of these big family offices and you say, well, who's running the show? The kids are coming in. Yeah, the kids are coming in. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you have the 70 to 90 year old folks who are, you know, taking a step back and their kids, the kids, right? The kids are in their 40s these days, most of them. Right. And kids. the kids, yeah been you know in the family business for the last 20 years who know the ins and outs just as much as their folks their parents knew you know when they were in their 40s right most of them are really smart people right so you know they have three four kids you know the two dumb ones are out of the show but the two smart ones are still running the business right now really smart <laughs> i people. love where you put it up <laughs> yeah. hard, right but you have really smart people running most of these family offices very ambitious um they also have really professional ceos or ceos next to them right so they're not necessarily just sitting there alone, you know, trying to fumble their way around. They have the best executives in the world to their left and right and below and above them. And they're in a different type of world where they understand that what what, what allowed their father to win is not what's going to let them win or mother in some cases, right? The world has changed. The, the way they used to get value is, well, I have access to a deal that nobody else has, you know, I went with each side to the synagogue i heard about a deal you know we went outside we closed a little something between us and by the way it still happens to a certain degree and especially in the jewish community but that's not an advantage that's sustainable anymore the data is just out there nobody cares who you met in the synagogue and today you can't meet in a synagogue anyway because it's covid and the only way to win a deal is through technology um and the young guard gets that um and that changing the guards have been a huge part of it and they've also hired um, technology people, right? The CTO's job used to be to keep the Wi-Fi running and make sure your printer works. Today, right. the CTO's job is to build architecture, and they have teams of engineers and architects and product managers who whose job is to be able to say, "How can we create more value from what we have? How can we add value? How can we differentiate ourselves?" So it's changed a lot over the last few years. Amazing.
0: Tell me something. We had COVID going on. We still have COVID going on. What, from a data point of view? You guys have all the data. You see what's going on pre-COVID and now. What is the difference? What's going on in the market? What are you guys seeing? What are the differences? Where's the market going?
1: Yeah, it's a loaded question. I don't know if I can answer any of that smart in a smart manner. It's, uh, it's
0: tough, I know. But but, I'm, but I'm, I'll tell bad. you. I tell you why I'm asking you because when I ask people, you know that are you know they own real estate companies, no matter which size they are, no matter where they are, if they're retail, if they're hospitality, if they are multifamily, it doesn't matter. When I ask them, they come from the perspective of what their experience is, of the people that they work for them, what their experience is, on the properties in terms of what they got in terms of revenues. And that is not so much data-driven, it's somewhat data-driven, but it's more of a personal experience-driven. And it's true, it's all right. But why am I asking you? I'm asking you from the data point of view meaning that's already a larger type of scope. And we hear Moody's and we hear all these guys talking and and we quote them because who are we going to quote otherwise? But I'm asking you because you have some of the information that is more of the inside information. So that's what I'm asking you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think anecdotes are the the enemy of knowledge, right? I mean, not only is its it, is it- misleading in the sense that you you know you might think that's true but also kind of jades you know gives you some kind of jaded view about you know going to look for some other stuff because the anecdote that comes from someone um that you might trust or respect you know you might not go look for the actual information um let's break it down by asset class because otherwise it's very hard to answer that so right retail has been a disaster for a long time this is not a new process um, it just
0: triggered right
1: yeah, I, I would say, I don't even know if it's triggered at this point. I think it probably triggered before the recession. Um, we're way overbuilt in the US, North America, You know, the only country in, in the world that's even close to the US and in, in, in overbuilt square foot for retail is Canada. Um, and even that, it's not even close to how much we have in the US. And we don't even count everything in the US. There's a lot of right. um, mixed retail things. Like that. We don't even count that as part of statistics, right? So we could burn, you know, fifty to seventy-five percent of all retail in the US and we'd still be overbuilt compared to every other country in the world. Um, so that's the first challenge, which is we just have a lot of space that's allocated to retail that that makes no sense whatsoever. You know, those big malls of the 70s and 80s make no sense in this world. So omni is doing okay, you know, the big box omni channels, um, they're doing okay, but everyone else is pretty much bleeding You're talking about more the discount. Pardon me? You're talking about more of the discount. Discount stores, that kind of stuff. I think about general multi-channel, multi-channel. So large retail that you know, online, offline. Uh, the the major center is both a distribution center and it's a store right. and a way to push products. Um, and it may be serving you know, kind of a, an essential type of, of product like you know, like a Walmart. You know, groceries are also there. You know, they also have gas and you know, and uh, like everything in one place. Those places have been doing pretty well throughout the recession. Actually, some of them did even better than they did before. Right. They were also doing well before. Um, the giant malls are dying, right? I mean, all you have to do is go into Jersey and see that new ski mall. God knows who, who thought that would be a good idea when it was built. Um, the ski's horrible. The stores were about to open before COVID and then COVID hit. Um, that's gonna be a, a bloodbath, I think. And, and most malls in the US are gonna be a bloodbath because they were built at a time where it made sense. But when you look at that, you know, 15 to 30 years later, they make no sense. Nobody wants to go to a mall to buy stuff, right? We can buy shit online. That's that's what right. the world changed. And that was just a long, slow trickle of things like that. What happened during COVID is this rapid education process, right? So think about you know the 80-year-olds out there who, you know, were completely immune to to e you know to e-commerce at all, right? You know, that's an old term e-commerce, but I'll use it when we're talking about 80-year-olds you know, they were the ones who still went to the stores, but they didn't have a choice. They had to figure out how to shop online. And even folks like myself, are like I still like to pick my groceries, uh, the, the, you know, the fruits and the vegetables. I like to look at them, I like to touch them. Out right. like, it's stupid. I, I don't know any better than what I look at than the person who's picking it for me. But I think I do mentally, so I like to do that. Um, even I had to figure out, you know, even I had to move my consumption patterns during COVID to, to pretty much all remote. So everybody who is untrained how to transition to e-commerce or to online shopping, transition they were trained and once you're trained we know that you know once you're trained to buy stuff online it's very hard to go back it's very hard to go into a bookstore after you have the convenience of amazon it's very hard to go into a toy store and buy stuff for kids when you just order it online through amazon um so retail i would say is just went through a you know it was already in this dying trend and then just you know kind of off the nose you know, like a nosedive off the cliff at the end and i think the only thing that will save retail to a certain degree is um, this kind of experiential shopping which could which combines you know offline and online shopping. So think of a company like Bonobos or partner right. right. Parker, things like that that are trying to create. Or um, there's a company called Showfields, um, uh, which I really like. Um, I don't know how they're doing so I don't want to put a personal endorsement. I know founders are really cool people, but I think the concept's a really, really good concept. I think that's probably the future where you can say, um, I'm a store. I want to open up like a pop-up shop for, you know, three, four, six months in, you know, Minnesota. And then I want to open up in Detroit. I want to get, you know, more shopping around that, but I don't want to open up a random store and keep it forever in Detroit for the 10 year lease. It makes no sense to me. Right. Right. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in retail and I'm excited about that.
0: Right. The pop-up idea is is coming up really fast, right?
1: Yeah. I like that. I mean, I would say, I would take a look at Showfields for those who don't know it. I'm sure there's other companies are doing the same thing, but that's one I know. And I think they're doing really well. And um, they just opened up another store in um, Miami, and I think that's a that's a really cool um, concept. Right. But um, you know,
0: you know, uh, let me let me just barge in for a second. But you know, when we talk about retail, and I uh, and I want to shift to multifamily in a second. But uh, when we talk about retail, retail is a big thing. I Meaning, you have within retail, you have so many types, and so many, you have the nationals, and you have the moms and pops, and then you have the big ones and the small ones. And you have those that are, you know, more food oriented. You have the restaurants and you have the fast food. And they're all different in terms of what type of revenues they can bring and which locations they are. And then you have, you know, the more fancy and the dollar general. So it's it's really a deep discussion when it comes to that. What I want to do is shift a little bit and take it to the data that you guys are going through and seeing in multifamily. Because that is a really interesting discussion. Because what we see within classes, there's an A, B, and C, whatever you want to call it. You know, everybody calls it differently. Working this, that, um, the more luxurious. But then you have also the sectors of where they are in the suburbia area, right? In the urban, suburban. New York City is suffering. And what do you guys see? Where is this thing going? What can you tell me about it?
1: Okay. And just before we, we move over to multifamily, I just want to make a comment that I think what we've seen in retail is a massive uh, wealth transfer from those small firms to the big firms, because um, most of those restaurants, most of the small mom and pop shops they are all closed. Um, they all died off in COVID and most of them will never come back. Um, right. Restaurants don't have a year worth of, you know, income to hold them. They, they live right. from- They don't
0: have the cash flow, right. They don't have it.
1: Um, we're going to see a lot of landlords, I think in major cities, um, giving those restaurants and in, in place of business, you know, basically free rent for you know, for a long time and give them the opportunity to rev share, um, to make up some of the rent. I think it's the only way that those things come back because what we saw is an atrocious transfer of wealth from um, it was a bloodbath. It, it's yeah, and, and the, the winners are the Amazons who were already the winners, to, they were killing the small businesses anyway,
0: right?
1: Um, multifamily is an interesting question, right? First of all we're fortunate in the, in the residential space, you got to live somewhere, right? Unlike you know offices where you say, do I have to go to office? Not sure. Do I have to buy an, in a store? Not sure. I need somewhere to live. Um, and that's a good thing for condos, multifamily, single family homes, because it's not a question of, will it be okay? It's a question of where will it be, right? Is it going to be in a city or is it going to be in a suburb? Am I going to buy or am I going to rent? Am I going to be in a condo building or am I going to be in a single family home? Um, so what we're seeing there is less of a a bloodbath for the for the asset class, what we're seeing there is a transition from you know sub-asset class within the giant residential world. Um, multifamily, the next question should be multifamily rental or condo buildings, right? Um, big cities like New York City and San Francisco have like 70% of the population is renting, right? And by the way, right. um, I looked at the statistic in 1970 something, I can't remember when exactly in the 70s in New York City, it was the exact same ratio 70% were renters 30% um, were owners so here we are 50 years later and essentially the dynamic it's changed a little in between but essentially the dynamic 50 years later in new york city is also true in a lot of other major cities basically the same and renters um, leave faster why because they don't own the place they're a lot less sensitive Change, um, right. right they just pick up and go a lot easier right they're transitory by default in major cities like new york city they're already kind of transitory markets people come in from all around the world Um, Students, you know, people working from Europe, from from Asia, right? Um, A lot of transitory movement within the U.S. So, if you just shut down movement, then nobody comes and rents in the city. So, rentals in New York City is a bloodbath right now. But it was also a bloodbath after 9/11. It was a bloodbath in 0809. We've seen a lot of bloodbaths in New York City, and I'm I'm pretty confident that uh, what I think is the greatest city in the world will recover on on pretty much every metric and parameter that you can think because cities are more than just a place to live There's community there's culture there's there's a lot of right. things in the city that i think uh, there's relationships right try and find a relationship in the suburbs good luck um there's 16 people all 16 you know you already know right. have fun right um in a city it's a very different world so i think we're going to see um the, the revival of cities in the future that being said i'm taking depends, you
0: know, right, right the question is when right right
1: I yeah see, I think but and, and I have to be honest, I'm in Saratoga Springs right now. I'm not taking this meeting from my apartment in the city. I'm doing it from, you know, house out in Saratoga Springs. Um, so I think we do um, expect certain migration to some of these um, towns. We do see prices going up in a lot of um, suburb areas and a lot of places that, you know, uh, prior to the recession weren't as hot, right? So Miami going through a bit of a revival. Austin's going through a bit. Again, these places were still doing okay before, but you're, you're seeing a little uptick. Um, I think post-COVID we see a normalization of some of those things. Open question: What happens in San Francisco, which is going through some massive um, challenges of its own? You know, their leadership is atrocious at the state level, at the at the city level, at the judiciary level. They're, they've just every mistake you can possibly make. San Francisco is suffering from right now, but I think that's temporary. I think they're going to recall the governor. I think they're going to replace the mayor pretty soon. I think um, they're going to replace the judiciary there, and to a point where that city is going to be. Um, Back to the glory it used to be because the universities are still there. The diversity is still there. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, So I think we're going to see the revival of the city coming back as well for uh, multifamily generally.
0: Last thing before we, as we say, say goodbye try to keep this thing usually less than an hour so I can put it on Instagram also. (laughs) They have this thing that they limit. Um, When you sell your product, okay, I'm going back to this thing because this is something that just pops out to my mind. When you sell your product and you are in touch, you know, with those enterprises, this is really a lot of technicalities. Who is the person you talk to within those organizations? Who do you sell to? Oh,
1: that's a great question. So enterprise sales, almost always you're selling to two people, on you know, purposefully, and you're selling to another 15 people not on purpose. Right. So, okay. um, you have to sell to the chief technology office in the organization. So in our case, we're a technical product. I can't sell to the, you know, to the uh, to the top of the house, top of the house is well, great. What are you giving me? I'm giving you an API. And so I don't know what to do with that. I'll never know what yeah. to do. Right. So you're selling, even if it was, even if it's an application, And we also, you know, UI um, that some of our clients will use kind of in a BI tool, there's just nothing that they can do. Oh, my dog's uh, discovering the mailman, things that you find out, oh. out in the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when you sell into that unit, you know, you're selling a technology firm for technology you know, department first and foremost because they're the people who are going to implement it throughout the organization for technical product. You're also selling to the business head of that unit, right? Somebody's gonna say, well, assuming it worked and we implemented it, what does this give me? Oh, I can make better, faster decisions, I can, you know, do better, faster management, understand what I own. I, I want the value, the business value, and I also want the technical capability to merge together. You're also shadow selling to another 15 people in the organization that have an interest to say no. Um, you'll have a technical person who's doing this today, maybe, and says, "Well, am I going to lose my job?" And you have to figure out how do I alleviate this person's fears. I know we're actually adding more work for you. I'm um, sorry about that, by the way, but you're going to become a lot more important in your organization than you were, you know, a few weeks ago. So you're going to love this, and you're going to look like a rock star, right? And the people right. on the analyst side are like, "Am I going to be replaced?" No, no. You're still making decisions. We don't replace the the decision of what to do. That's not our job. Our job is to make you the rock star and say given all the information out there that now you have on your finger at your fingertips for the first time now you can be a lot smarter and say oh you know i really don't want to buy that asset over there i would have looked like an idiot if i would have bought it this one over here that everyone would have passed on i'm going to buy it now i look like a rock star right and you know people on the accounting or the analysis side like am i going to get fired now that this report's automated No, now you became a lot more important instead of typing in data your job is now to say well why is this different than it was a month ago oh you know why i just discovered something right so how do I empower all these people that are afraid about you know what this means for them to, to make sure they don't say no right because that's the fear they say no um, right. so the technical team it's the business team it's all the people in your organization that you may or may not know about you have to make sure that they're not afraid they're going to be replaced or they're not afraid that's amazing that's important
0: There's so much into that thing um, before we say goodbye can you give me an example of a product that you were supposed to create meaning or a service that you were supposed to give to one of your clients. Uh, without getting into too specific, you know, too much specifics, but if you give us a live example of something that you do, like they needed X, I did Y, and I got them this and they knew it and they could so, use yeah. it. and they could,
1: Yeah. All of our clients in the same world. So we, we only have one product um, which connects data, right? So all of our clients have the exact same problem. I have a lot of data from all these different sources and I just want it all connected to a single source of truth for this specific use case. The specific use case is almost always in our clients. I want to buy assets or I want to manage them better. Um, So again, most of our clients are confidential. You can see the ones on the website. I I hate naming a name because anyone I name, somebody's going to get upset that I didn't mention them as well, but um, take a a top five large investment manager in the US, one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. Um, Every single process of buying an assets, again, manual analysts come in from the broker, spend weeks taking data from all these different places, building models, pushing Argus, coming back, and once I make the decision to buy it, then it the, becomes the next step. Well, how do I add it to my Yardian real page systems and how do I add it to my JD Edwards and how do I build the reports and now all that manual. Instead, today, everything's connected behind the scenes. I can now say, when I'm looking at this asset, give me everything I know about this asset. Great. Push it into a model instantly. Great. Push it into Argus to get the calculation. Great. At, I, I made the acquisition You know, through a deal path or some other you know manual um, process they're buying it through. Awesome. I have it. you know, in a CRM system like you know, APTO or Rethink or something like that. Great, I'm tracking it. And then I push into the next step, which is now it goes into my management system. I push it right into Yardi, MRI, real page. My reports are there automatically. And my my reporting upstream to my LPs is also done automatically. So we took a process that's completely manual, millions and millions of dollars of many people, you know, having to do stuff manually. And instead it's just you know a couple pushes of buttons and everybody's smarter and, and does the things a lot better than they used to.
0: It's amazing. LD. I don't want to take more of your time. Thank you so much for being with us. That was really interesting, really fun also, really enlightening. And uh, I wish you well in this crazy time. And hopefully you'll go back to the city happy and uh, back to normality, as we call it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Do you, do you want to tell everybody where to find you, how to find you? If we are having some enterprise, people who work in enterprises are looking at us, how can they see, how can they find you guys?
1: No, definitely. Uh, it's very easy to find me. Um, I'm, you can find me on LinkedIn. My, my name, L.D. Salmonson's very easy to find, a very unique name. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Talking Nonsense, at, at Systep, S-Y-S-T-E-P, um, Cherry, C-H-E-R-R-E.com, Cherry. Um, somebody will answer pretty quickly there and uh, speak to any one of our clients. They're happy to give us uh, good recommendations. Um, thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun, and hopefully we can see each other in person in the near future. No
0: problem. Yeah, please, got soon. And you haven't been there for a while, but uh, maybe that will change very, very soon. So we'll see what happens. Thanks, LD. I appreciate yeah, it. Take care of yourself. All right, guys. So th- I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you guys got so much out of it because I enjoyed this and this was a great discussion. Um, Data and real estate are so correlated today. You can't do one without the other. So before we go, I just want to say to you goodbye and have a beautiful week. But before we go, I just want to remind you about the seven-day challenge that you guys can take right now. You have a link down below. And uh, I have the first day of the seven-day challenge. If you want to get into commercial real estate, you want to taste commercial real estate, you want to get in touch with it, you want to get to know it before you dive into it and you make a career out of it, whether it's an investing career or, or or you want to make a real career out of it you got an opportunity to get the first day of the 7 day challenge the 7 day CRE challenge for free click below and you get it and with that I'm going to tell you goodbye guys have a beautiful week and successful one a successful one take care hey guys thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye show I hope you enjoyed it and Go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.